Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Antecedently, the chances of me doing a lot of good by going into philosophy were not very high. But, uh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we can say it was the right decision to make. Hello, welcome to Zuconcho on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is an episode I've wanted to do forever. I think it's probably true that Peter Singer is the most influential public intellectual of certainly my lifetime. He's had book after book that have either started or very importantly changed incredibly moral movements. Certainly, I think the public intellectual who's done the most good in my lifetime is book Animal Liberation. Going back is one of the founding texts of certainly the American animal liberation movement. His book, The Life You Can Save, which came out about 10 years ago, it's actually being reissued now. And after December 3rd, you're going to be able to download it for free at alifeyoucansave.org. He talks more about that. It's a book that is in many ways foundational to the effective altruism movement. Singer has done a tremendous amount of just really important work and really stark work. Something that I appreciate about his writing deeply is that in his world, being a good person, although I don't think he would like that I say it exactly like that, but I'm going to say it like that. Being a good person, doing what under pretty basic moral frameworks is obligated of us is really hard. It's really hard. It is the work, not just of a lifetime, but it's a work that requires you to put yourself pretty far back in the frame, put those nearest to you, right around you, pretty far back in the frame. It's not uncontroversial work, but you know, you think of philosophy as esoteric and abstract and these questions is difficult, and this is beautifully simple. It is terrifyingly simple. And he lays out the case in here, but this is work that has certainly influenced very much the way I live my life and continues to. It has influenced the way many people live their lives. And there's just a deep moral seriousness about it. So you may not end up agreeing with everything in here. Many things you may not want to agree with and have trouble figuring out how to reject them. So I think a lot of people have that experience with Singer's work. And I think it is worth at least sitting in that discomfort and noting certainly in this interview that he sits in it too, right? The fact that we may not be able to do everything that could be demanded of us under some of these ideas doesn't mean that we can't do a lot more than we do now and doesn't mean that there actually wouldn't be a grace and a joy in doing more than we do now. So I'm very excited to bring you this interview with Peter Singer. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Box.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Box.com. But here is Princeton University's Peter Singer. Peter Singer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ezra. It's good to be with you. Why don't we begin with the thought experiment that begins every life you can save? Do you want to just walk through that? So the thought experiment here is that you're walking across a park, that somewhere in that park there's a pond. 
You're familiar with the park and the pond. You know the pond is quite shallow. Sometimes in summer you've seen kids splashing in it. It's only waist deep for an adult. But it's not summer now, uh, so you don't expect to see anyone in the pond. But you do see something splashing in the pond. And when you look closer, you're shocked to find it's a small child who seems to have fallen into the pond and is flailing around, and it's too deep for this small child to stand. So you look around, you say, hey, who's looking after this child? Where are the parents or the babysitter? But there's nobody there. Seems to be only you and the child. Your next thought is, I better save that child. Run down to the pond, jump into the pond, grab the child. Not hard to do. No risk to me. I know the pond is shallow. And pull the child out. But then it does occur to you that even though there's no risk to you, it is going to ruin your shoes and you've got your most expensive shoes on because you were going somewhere special. You'll be up for some hundreds of dollars to replace them and other clothes you might ruin. So then you think, well, suppose I just walked on. After all, it's not my child and nobody asked me to look after the child. I've got no responsibility for this child. I didn't cause the child to be in the pond. Why shouldn't I just walk on and then not have to go to the expense of replacing my shoes? Now, the question for you and everybody else who's listening is, if somebody did that, if you did that, would you think that was really the wrong thing to do? Would you think that you'd done something seriously wrong in leaving the child very probably to drown because there doesn't seem to be anyone else around who will save that child? And most of the people who I ask this say yes, that would be an awful thing to do. That would be a really terrible thing to allow a child to drown because you didn't want to go to the expense of buying new shoes, even if they're expensive ones. That would be awful. The point of the thought experiment is to then switch to the situation that we really are in, not standing in front of a pond with a child drowning, but living in an affluent society where we have more than we need, often considerably more than we need to meet all our basic needs and enjoy our life and make reasonable provision for the future. And we also are living in a world in which there are millions of children who die each year from preventable causes. And there are effective organizations that would gladly accept a donation from you that were, it would increase their ability to save some of these children. And if you're not doing that, if you're not helping them to save some of these children, then are you really all that different from the person who walks past the child in the pond because they don't want to be up for the expense of replacing their shoes? Or even to put it more sharply, if I go out tomorrow and I buy an expensive pair of shoes, given that I could have sent that money to a group that donates malarial bed nets in Africa, according to this experiment, I am basically making that choice. Yes, you are making that choice. Everything that you buy that you don't really need to buy, you are making a choice between donating the sum you spend and buying whatever it is. Now, of course, some people will say, well, why not do both? You know, I can do both. Um, but none of us have infinite bank accounts, not even Bill Gates. And so there is still a trade-off. There's always a trade-off. We can do a bit of both, but we can't do as much of helping to save the children as we would if we didn't buy the, the expensive luxuries, the items we don't really need. It's an incredibly simple thought experiment with incredibly, for most of our lives, radical implications. And I'm curious, what was the intellectual context in which you came up with it? 
The context was the crisis in what is now Bangladesh um, and was then East Pakistan. Uh, this was 1971. Uh, there was an autonomy movement in East Pakistan to have more autonomy from the, the dominant West Pakistan. And that was brutally repressed by the Pakistani army, as a result of which nine million refugees fled across the border into India, which was then a much poorer country than it is today and really was struggling to, to feed and house, provide sanitation for nine million sudden new arrivals. So that made me think about what I should be doing uh, about this. And now, at the time, I was a graduate student uh, studying in, in Oxford in England. Uh, I was on a scholarship. I was married. My wife was a high school teacher. So between us, we certainly had adequate income. We didn't have abundant income, but we certainly had adequate income. And I started thinking about what should I be doing in this situation? What is the limiting principle here? At what point does the fact that you could spend your resources, be they money, be they time, on saving people who could be saved versus doing something pleasant, buying something pleasant, having a somewhat more pleasant life, at what point does that cease to be, at least under the, the construct you've created here, immoral? What is, what is the limit? It's not easy to say what the limit is, and in a sense, it depends exactly what question you're asking. Um, if you're asking about... What is the point where I'm doing everything that it would be good for me to do? Uh, I'm completely fulfilling my obligations. I'm living a completely ethical life. I think it's hard to find a stopping place until you get to the point where what you're giving up is starting to look pretty similar to what the person who's benefiting from your donation is actually getting. So, you know, it's not absolute equality, but it's the point where if you gave more, then there would be some kind of equality between you. Uh, and that's, of course, you know, for people living in the United States or other affluent countries, that's very far. Now, I think you could ask a different question, though, and that question would be, at what point have I done enough so that I don't have to torture myself with guilt, so that other people are really not going to be in any position to blame me for what I'm doing, and where, in fact, I can look back with some kind of satisfaction and, and fulfillment that I'm not just playing my part, but really perhaps doing even more than that, raising the bar on, on what we ought to be doing. And that amount, of course, will vary depending on how much income and surplus uh, wealth that you have. I suggest in, in the book, The Life You Can Save, I have a kind of a, a table uh, where I suggest percentages that start from 1% of income and rise to uh, 33 and a third to a third of income for people who are very wealthy. And you know what I'm trying to do here is to say, well, what can you give that really is not a serious hardship but is making a really significant difference at the same time? Uh, and I'd say perhaps that's the point at which we ought to aim to get unless we are really the kind of people who think that we can be perfect in a way or close to perfect or, or near saints. Um, but for most people, I think there's there's a reasonable cutoff line that comes well before that. But I want to hold on that, that question of not even being near saints, but just being a good person. The thought experiment you propose, its vividness is that it makes clear that some of the very ordinary decisions of our lives, I bought a coffee at Starbucks this morning, are at least viewed in a pretty understandable moral framework, quite evil. 
right? If you did it with the harm in front of you, if you had to look at what was happening and what you were permitting, you would never permit that. You would never look at it that way. And something that that seems to me to to demand of us, or at least demand a facing up to, is that perhaps being a truly good person is very, very hard. That the way we talk about it in contemporary society, where you're a good person if you love your family, you know, you go to your job day in and day out, you don't kick puppies, maybe you give a little bit to charity, you don't, you volunteer some time to your community, that to actually call yourself good is an incredibly hard bar to clear. It's something that would take a, a, a lifetime of commitment and devotion and to some degree an almost annihilation of the self. I think that's a little too strong. Um, firstly, you, at one point in what you said, you used the term evil, I think, for buying the, the, the coffee. I think you might be a bit thoughtless, you might be a bit selfish, inconsiderate of the needs of others, or just plain ignorant about what you could do with that. Um, I wouldn't call any of those things evil. I'd res reserve that for you know, a different kind of person. In terms of saying that you're not really good, that too perhaps is a, a relative standard. Uh, not good compared to what? Uh, you might be very good compared to what most people in your community are doing. Let's say, let's say you give 10%, um, which is you know, way above what um, most Americans give to charity, and especially if you're careful about finding the most effective charities to give to, which again, overwhelmingly Americans are not doing any research into what are the most effective charities. So, so you'd be doing a lot more good, uh, you know, many multiples of good than most people are doing. And I think you could say, I'm not, I'm not all that bad then, you know, I'm, I'm raising the bar, I'm doing quite a bit, I'm way ahead of most of the people in my peer group. Now, sure, somebody could then say, but look, 10% from what you're earning, you could give 50% and you'd still be vastly better off than people in low-income countries. Uh, and you'd have to at least do that, let's say, to be, to be really good. So that might be true. There, there is a framework, as you say, from which that's true and, and that makes it difficult. But I guess people can choose their frameworks of their standards of comparison, whether it's that more peer group related standard or whether it's that more absolute standard of what really would be doing the most good with my life. One of the things about the way you frame it in that book is that for a lot of people who encounter it, um, you know, even for me to some degree, but I've not gone where some of them do, it lodges in your brain in a way that you can't quite get away from. I mean, the reason I use terms like evil is that to use your thought experiment, if I watched somebody or if I knew of somebody walking by a pond, seeing a child drowning, and they walked on because they didn't want to dirty their suit, okay, maybe evil is a strong word, but it's probably the word I would end up using. So recognizing that I, one can always be more precise, I think the question of if you buy that argument, what do you do with the fact that there aren't limiting principles on it? Um, it's inspired a movement of people who take high-paying jobs so they can give 70% of their money away to charity. The thing that it raises for me, and there's a question of can you do relatively more than a lot of people do because a lot of people don't do that much at all. So great, that's a good thing. But the question of what does it mean to, to be virtuous, to, to live a good life, is I think an important one to struggle with. And so I guess then I would just turn that question directly to you. Like, What do you think it means to live a good life, to be able to say you know, on your deathbed that I tried. Like I did, I, I, I tried to look at the suffering and I tried to do what was asked of me within within some level of reason. Like how do you, how do you think about weighing that? 
I certainly think that those are the questions you should ask yourself. Did I try to live so as to make the world a better place, so as to help other humans and reduce suffering for humans or for animals in the world? Um, did I think about how best to do that, not just to make the world slightly better place, but given the resources I have to use them most effectively to do the most good that I can, or at least come close to that? Uh, those are questions I think that you should be asking yourself. But at the same time, I don't think you should be terribly hard on yourself if you say, well, there were there were temptations that I succumbed to, there were people that I loved and cared for more than I care for strangers, and I did a lot more for them than I did for strangers, even though I know that it would have created more good overall if I'd done it for strangers in greater need. And I spent more on myself and my own comforts uh, than I should have given the needs of strangers. But still, if I, you know, within those limits, I, I thought about this, I, tr I tried, I spent a lot of my time or perhaps a lot of my income or wealth trying to help other people, I think you could die reasonably content with what you've done and feeling reasonably good about yourself. A theme of the book is partiality to those closest to us. You profile some people in it who give away almost all of the money that their children would have inherited, in part because they think inheritances are, are bad for the children, but also people who don't spend much time at all with their own families because they're trying to help others, people who don't leave very much for their own families because they're trying to help others, and people who just think it would be on some level immoral to weight your family's interests much larger than that of the rest of the world. Maybe a little bit bigger, but but not, you know, much bigger. And I'm struck reading that, how much some of that ethical framework actually mirrors a lot of what is in uh, classical religions. Um, very famously, Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do you see a connection there? Uh I see some similarities. I don't really see a connection. I've certainly, uh, you know, never been a religious person, let alone a, a Christian. Um, but I suppose I did grow up in a largely Christian society. So, yes, there's probably some connection there. But Jesus, of course, was offering people a reward in an afterlife, and uh, you know, so in a way, he wasn't asking people to be unselfish in that sense. He was telling them that there is an afterlife, and it's you know, it's much longer, obviously, than this short life that we're on this earth, um, and the rewards are much greater. So he was appealing to people's self-interest. And um, I don't do that, or at least I'm doing it only in the sense of uh, self-interest on in this life, because I believe that's the only one we have. And it's a sort of enlightened self-interest, if you like. It's It's the sense of giving yourself a purpose in life by taking on this idea of doing the most good you can and feeling fulfillment that you are helping a lot of other people and that you know that you know, you're not just on a treadmill trying to rise up some corporate ladder or earn more than other people or go on even more luxurious vacations than other people, but you're really trying to do good in the world. So, so I do think that there's a self-interest in that in a broad sense, but I think it's very different from the kind of appeal that Jesus uh, appears to have been making as reported in the Gospels. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a fair corrective on that. But but within the idea of trying to reduce your own partiality, um, you've written in other works about expanding the moral circle that just part of the work of being a good person is we have certain what, what at least feel to be ingrained 
tendencies to very heavily weight ourselves and those closest to us, our, our kin, you know, maybe our, our, our immediate group, and then uh, laddering up to our nationality and so on. But that there's a long set of moral traditions and now ethical traditions that are about trying to weaken that bond in us, trying to say that the interests of not just other people, but even other species really matter. When you talk about enlightened self-interest, what are the hooks that allow people to begin doing that work? Well, I think having a, a really worthwhile purpose is, is a major hook here. I think once you get to the point where it's not a problem for you to provide for your basic needs and for those of people close to you, then we in the affluent world easily run out of purposes and we spend our time doing things that aren't really satisfying, that uh, maybe you know, give us some sort of short-term purposes, uh, but don't give us a, a deeper sense of happiness or fulfillment. And I believe that being less partial, thinking about the world as a whole, identifying with a philanthropic tradition that has tried to make the world a better place, a, a humanitarian tradition, I think that that is a place where we can feel that our lives are going better and we can feel happier in doing that. And, and there's psychological uh, research, which I refer to in the book, which does bear that out, that suggests that people who are generous are happier and uh, that that's not just a correlation, but that there is uh, a causal flow from being generous, helping others to being happier, more satisfied with your life. I'd like to draw that out a little bit. So imagine somebody who makes $150,000 a year. One of the arguments laced in the book, and actually an argument I find at least in some ways appealing, although I can't say I, I give 50% of my own income, is that perhaps you actually would be happier living on $75,000 a year and giving the other $75,000, and talking here pre-tax, to the poor or to other charities of, of meaning and effect. Um, that making that kind of large commitment brings you out of the realm of mere of, of simply a bit of charity and into the realm of it giving your life a purpose. And you not only have some research in the book, but you also profile some people in the book who say that, that, that there is a phase you can cross into here where you're not just donating a bit, but you've actually changed the meaning of your life. Can you talk a bit about why that might make somebody happier than being able to spend that extra $75,000 on themselves and, them, and their own comfort? The, the research on what we get out of consumer spending uh, isn't all that encouraging. It, it doesn't show that having 150000 to spend on yourself rather than 75000 really makes a lasting difference to how happy you are. Uh, yes, getting new consumer goods makes you happy for a while, but you adapt to that. Um, and you adapt to any higher levels of consumer spending. Once you've, once you've met those needs, and, and I'm not just talking about enough food, you could do that for far less than 75, but once you've met the kind of needs that you can if you're on 75,000, then going beyond that doesn't contribute greatly to your, your happiness. Whereas um, finding purposes, feeling that you're doing good, knowing that you're helping others, uh, perhaps also I should mention being part of a community that thinks that this is a good way to live uh, also helps. And, and it doesn't have to be a community that you're geographically in the midst of. It can be a, a virtual community. But linking up with other effective altruists and talking about what you're doing, I think, is also important to many people. You, you mentioned effective altruism here. This is a movement that has in part grown up around these ideas. I'm curious, uh, you know, a decade on, 
what you think of it, like what you think of the of of the social dimensions that have emerged around this framework and philosophy. I think effective altruism has been a wonderful thing. I think it's been a demonstration of philosophy really changing lives and getting to people who are not even part of the university community at all, but are still discussing ethical questions that are clearly uh, philosophical issues. And in fact, if you look at the the online blogs and discussions, they're throwing up new points that uh, haven't necessarily already been raised by the philosophers who are involved in effective altruism. And there are some excellent philosophers who are involved in in, uh, effective altruism and who do hold university positions in philosophy departments. But there are also some excellent philosophers who have not studied philosophy formally and not in philosophy departments, but are contributing online and and are making good points. So I find, you know, as a professional philosopher, someone who's spent my whole life doing that, I I find this, uh, you know, really a tremendous thing, a, a clear demonstration that philosophy can have this impact. And, and I sh- should say it's, it's important for the humanities at a time when the humanities are under criticism uh, to show that this is happening. Uh, the other thing that I really like about it is that it has made a significant difference that uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, I think ultimately it will certainly be billions of dollars, have gone to more effective organizations, have done more good than they would have if the effective altruism movement had never existed. Uh, so that's really important. So as we dig deeper into this, uh, for people not uh, familiar with effective altruism, there it really is the two sides of it that are in the name. There's the altruism dimension, which is living your life much more in concert with uh, the thought experiment we talked about at the beginning, recognizing that that demands of you a certain altruism if you want to understand yourself as a good person that's important. But the effective side of it is very important. And the effective side is trying to be extremely empirical and rigorous in the research you take into account so that you know if you're doing that work to donate that money, that that money is actually going to help people, that that money is not being wasted because money wasted, um, it doesn't, when it could have been spent on something good, gets you into the exact same problem of the of the child drowning in the puddle. One of the things a lot of people in the effective altruism movement have become very committed to is the idea of existential risk in the future. And their argument is that saving one child now is worth than is worth less than a 1% chance of saving a billion children in the future. What do you think of that argument? Mathematically, you have to accept that, right? Uh, unless you discount the future. Um, some economists discount the future. But uh, I think it's a mistake to have what is called pure time discounting. In other words, you can discount for the fact that if you invested your dollar now, you would get some interest on it and get some larger return in the future. You can discount for uncertainty. You know, maybe there won't be people in another century or another thousand years. Maybe something will wipe us all out. And uh, so you won't be doing any good. But, But when you put aside those things, I don't think you should discount the future. So then the mathematics of what you said certainly are correct. But we do need to take account of uncertainty. And that's not only uncertainty about whether there will be future people, but also whether we can know now what will benefit those future people. And if we're talking about risks of extinction, existential risk, as effective altruists call it, then we need to know that we can reduce those risks. And you know, that will sometimes be the case for, for each of the, the risks that we can talk about. Some of them we will know with high confidence that we can reduce that risk. Um, others, I think we'd only have quite low confidence. But still, as you said, you know, if the, if the number of lives are big enough, then even a small chance uh, of reducing the risk seems important. Philosophers also ask questions about 
should we be concerned with merely possible people in the same way that we're concerned with the lives of uh, people who either exist now or definitely will exist, irrespective of what we do? Uh, so that's another kind of underlying and quite deep philosophical question. But I think, you know, I think it's, it's reasonable to say that we should be putting resources into researching uh, risks of extinction and into how we might reduce those risks. I don't like that question becoming the dominant public face, if you like, of the effective altruism movement. One reason why I don't like that is I don't think that's going to really broaden the movement. Uh, I think that that would make the movement a quite narrow movement of reasonably sophisticated thinkers who go through these calculations and can not only distance themselves from the child in the pond in front of them and think about a child in a low-income country somewhere else in the world, but can think about people living centuries into the future. And I think that's not going to be a large proportion of the population. So I'd, I'd rather have an effective altruism movement that talks a lot about effective altruism with regard to extreme poverty and talks a lot about what we can do to reduce the suffering of billions of animals right here and now, particularly the animals in factory farms. And I'd certainly like the movement to have some awareness of, of extinction risk and of trying to prevent that. But uh, I wouldn't want that to be the principal focus of the movement. One of the things that the effective dimension forces people to to really embrace, and I think with certainly within that community's confines, become uh, quite obsessive about is rigor, right? What can you, what can you really measure? What can you know? And Almost by nature, that's going to put an emphasis on the things that you can measure that are going to have a somewhat sure payoff against the things that are a lot fuzzier. And so a lot of people in it, for instance, as they're choosing careers, have begun thinking a lot about, well, I'm certain I can do a lot of good by making a lot of money, say working at a hedge fund and donating that money. Um, and so maybe I should do that and just maximize my financial return as opposed to the kinds of careers that at another time would have been what you would do if you wanted to be a humanitarian, maybe join the Peace Corps, you go work in humanitarian aid. And maybe I'll ask a question this way. If you had adapted the mindset of effective altruism when you were deciding on a career, do you think you would have ended up studying philosophy and thus ended up doing all the good you've done? Or do you think that it would have pushed you towards something more pragmatic and financially maximizing so you could have donated that money? I have to admit that probably it would have pushed me towards doing something else anyway. So it could have been something financially maximizing, could have been some other line of research which would have had more probable antecedent payoff than going into philosophy. I admit I was not thinking along these lines in going into philosophy. I was thinking that this was an interesting subject, lots of interesting issues in philosophy that I was interested in and wanted to learn more about and pursue. Uh, but I think I turned out, you know, I was very fortunate. I turned out to be in, in the right place at the right time when philosophy was just starting to become more applied, more practical uh, after having had a period where Mostly philosophers were just analyzing the meanings of words. There were some areas that are important that I helped to open up and helped to get more people involved in. So antecedently, the chances of me doing a lot of good by going into philosophy were not very high. But uh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we can say it was the right decision to make. Yeah, I mean, and I'll, I'll say car, cards on the table that I think you've done tremendous, extraordinary good from, from that from that perch. And so what does it say about that mode of evaluating your life that it might have prevented the emergence of Peter Singer? 
Uh, so firstly, of course, you know, if I hadn't been there, uh, quite likely some other philosophers would have come along and would have started taking up the issues that I took up and maybe would have argued in a similar way and for similar conclusions. So we can't be sure that the world would have been that much worse without what I did. But look, I, I, I take your, your basic point is that maybe effective altruists are too concerned about having high confidence that they'll do some good and should be more prepared to take gambles in, in different fields. And I think, in fact, that many effective altruists are aware of that. Uh, if we're talking about career choice, the leading website maybe is even almost the only website that really talks about career choice in effective altruist terms is 80,000hours.org. And although when they started off, they did focus quite strongly on earning a lot of money so that you can give a lot of money and arguments about why that was better than going to work directly for a nonprofit because you could pay for not just one, but multiple positions at the nonprofit if you earned a lot of money. But now, if you look at the website, they do talk about other careers that have low probabilities, but low probabilities of achieving really a lot of good. So they talk about going into research in areas where if you make an important discovery, you'll do a lot of good. Uh, and they talk about going into politics even, which, um, you know, certainly very long odds that you'll be able to do a lot of good. But if you really get to the top, you'll be able to do a huge amount of good. Uh, and even maybe some middle positions, you'll do a lot of good. So I think effective altruists are, are more aware of this criticism than they were maybe five years ago and are starting to respond to it. We've talked primarily here about money, but I actually want to talk about time and some other interests. And to maybe use a, a good example from my own life, this podcast will come out after one I recently did with Gretchen McCulloch, who's wonderful and she's a linguist and she wrote a great book called Because Internet about how digital mediums have changed the way we speak. And it's great and it's an interesting podcast and a fun podcast. If you've not heard it, I'd love you to do so. But within this model, that is a podcast I could have spent the time on and it turned hundreds of thousands of people onto somebody working on solutions for the problems afflicting the poorest of the poor or something in politics that has the capacity in a scaled way to, to, to really change people's lives. And so where do things like art, entertainment, listening to great music, just like the, the range of things that make life interesting, where do they fit under this, uh, an, under this model of living a moral life? Well, let's take the question first of whether you should have had a different podcast instead of the one with Gretchen McCullough that you mentioned, uh, if you should have had one that would have led people to, to do more good directly. The question is, if you only did those podcasts, would you still have the same audience that right. you have now? And uh, I don't know if you keep statistics, but I remember that Nicholas Kristof, uh, the New York Times columnist, who does write columns about doing good and global poverty and has written a column once featuring some of my thoughts about effective altruism. Um, but he has reported that the columns that he writes of that kind do get fewer hits. We're talking about the digital, of course, here. We can't really measure the the print reading readership, but, but digitally, they, they get fewer hits than the other ones. So he does have them. His editor doesn't discourage him, but... Um, I guess the idea is that if he only did those, he would lose readers. And so we have to face the, the facts that that's what most people are like. Um, they're not going to go just for 
the worthy causes, the, the, the important issues, the issues that are going to save lives or reduce suffering. And uh, I think if we broaden out your larger question of what are, what are the place of the arts and of culture more broadly and of all the, the entertainment industry in general, I think we have to accept that uh, people want that, people need that, people are, are not going to accept the more pure diet of worthy causes and how you can work for them. Uh, and so I think all of those things have a place. And let me ask that without, outside of the context of the strategic dimension, because I agree with you that um, that it's probably in some way audience maximizing, which means then when I have a Peter Singer podcast, there's a bigger audience to listen to it. And, you know, I can I can make an argument like that. But in your own life, do you read novels? Do you watch dumb sitcoms? Do you and how do you think about those things? I mean, are they just they they work because they keep you or someone else fresh to keep doing the important work? Or, or is there some kind of intrinsic good? And I ask this in part because I think one of the fears about truly embracing utilitarian logic is it can make you into just a constant point score in your own life. And it becomes hard to see how to value some of the other things. But that do seem in some way, and I'm not a trained philosopher, but that's hard to express, but nevertheless there, to be an important part of what human beings are building, why it is important that human beings keep existing, what we're, what our civilizations amount to. That, like, how there must be, is there a place in the framework where they fit beyond people like them and want them, and sort of we got to make accommodations to that? Yes, it's a, it's a question that I've gone around on, and I, I find it difficult. Really, I, I, I do want to say that I think value depends on improving the well-being of sentient creatures reducing their suffering, making their lives better, happier. And of course, reading a novel, watching a sitcom may make people happier, and, and that's good. Does it have an independent value because it's great art? Uh, you know, this was the question that Bentham asked when uh, he discusses, uh, is Pushpin better than poetry? Pushpin was a, a pub game that you played. And his answer is no. If quantities of pleasure are the same, then Pushpin is just as good as poetry. That's a pretty hard line answer. And of course, you can say things like, yes, but nevertheless, you know, the great novels are better than the trashy novels because you can read them and reread them and you get things out of them that you don't get, that you think about later. And it's not just how happy are you during the moments of reading. It's, it's what do you take from them for the rest of your life and does that give you some greater sense of yourself and of the world and of purpose? I think all of those things can be said. But is there intrinsic value in their existence as such independently of any of those effects? I doubt it. Um, is there value in the creation of them, you could ask, in the expression of the human spirit in creating them? Well, that's something that we can admire. But again, independently of improving the well-being of, of sentient beings, I'm inclined to say ultimately no. If I watched your life for a week, would I see a sort of perfectly utilitarian existence or would I see a more mixed, normal, what I think of as as just somebody going about going about their day in business? Like how, how much does this infuse your everyday your everyday schedule versus how much are you making the same compromises the rest of us are? Uh you would certainly not see a, a completely utilitarian life. Uh, you would see a life that was lived for partial purposes in, in many ways, including, uh, I suppose, particularly uh, the time I spend with 
with family and uh, contacting family and, and close friends. Uh, so that's, if I'm not working, that's probably what I'm mostly doing. Uh, you asked earlier and I didn't answer whether I read novels or watch sitcoms. I read a couple of novels a year, but not many for a bit of a break or, you know, when I'm on vacation or at the beach or something like that. I actually watch virtually no television. I don't, you know, maybe I, I watch an episode of a sitcom on a plane if I've been working for a while on the plane and now I'm tired of working and need a break. Not even The Good Place? Ah, well, of course, The Good Place has had an important role in the life you can save. Thanks for mentioning that. Uh, Mike Schur, the creator of The Good Place, uh, has written a foreword to the book and several of the people involved, including Mike Schur himself, uh, Kristen Bell, and Mark Evan Jackson, have read chapters of the audiobook. Uh, so, yes, I'm thankful to them. And I did somebody put me onto the fact, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I think, that uh, one of my books had appeared in The Good Place. And so then I started watching a couple of episodes. But I have to say, um, I'm not a regular. I, I dip into it from time to time. I watched an episode again quite recently. But uh, no, I don't, I don't sit down and watch the new episode regularly as it appears. Well, one of the things about your work is just is a vast amount of very influential um, ethical work you've done. And, and you played a big role in launching and certainly building the moral framework of the animal liberation and rights movement in this country. And decades on, how would you assess the successes and failures of that project? I would say that it has had clear successes and it is still having clear successes, but it hasn't had as much success as I think it should have had, given just how clearly wrong the way we're treating animals now is. Uh, and by that, I'm particularly referring to factory farming, to intensive farming, because that's the overwhelmingly vast quantity of the suffering that we're inflicting on animals, is, is the farmed animals, because there are just so many of them that we're talking about uh, billions in the United States alone, worldwide, we're talking about 74 billion animals reared and, and killed each year uh, for food. So this really dwarfs, you know, everything we do to dogs and cats, everything we do to lab animals, everything we do to animals for fur is is dwarfed by by that. And that has not shrunk. In fact, it's grown since I published Animal Liberation in 1975. It's grown uh, in part because of the increased prosperity of, of nations like China, which uh, now consume far more meat than they used to, and that's almost entirely produced from factory farms with no animal welfare controls. In, in countries uh, like the United States and even more so uh, the European Union, there have been some laws that have reduced the suffering of farmed animals, uh, in fact, across all of the European Union, all 28 nations, uh, there are laws prohibiting the standard battery cage, which is still the way that hundreds of millions of hens are living in the United States right now, also prohibiting individual stalls for veal calves and for pigs, for use, they're used for breeding sows in the pig industry. Um, so that also, we're talking about um, many millions of animals in the United States being kept in ways that have been illegal for a few years now uh, in the European Union. We are making some progress. Uh, California is the state, uh, that the largest state that has enacted 
legislation similar in effect to what the European Union has enacted. And uh, just yesterday, actually, I got an email from a, uh, a friend with uh, the Humane League, uh, one of the animal welfare organizations working against factory farming, saying that they had achieved a victory in Michigan. Uh, Michigan uh, governor has now signed into law uh, a phase-out of the battery cage for hens. I think it's still going to take several years before they're gone, which is a pity, but um, at least they're on the way out. And I think I think there's, as well as California and Michigan now, there's Oregon uh, and maybe one or two other states that uh, have banned the battery cage uh, and other states that have done things for the pigs and veal calves and so on. But uh, unfortunately for the majority of uh, United States farm animals, there are still no legal protection to prevent them being very closely confined indoors for their entire lives. A key idea in the framework you build in animal liberation is this idea of speciesism. Can you talk a bit about what that is and how it operates? Speciesism is a word that uh, I didn't actually coin it. I took it from uh, somebody I knew in Oxford as a graduate student, a man called Richard Ryder, but I've popularized it and I understand it to make the analogy with racism and sexism that is, that it's a prejudice that a more powerful group has against those who are less powerful. And as a result of this prejudice, the more powerful group uses uh, or exploits the less powerful group for their own ends and also adopts a whole set of ideas about the inferiority of the less powerful group. And I think that does describe pretty clearly the way humans uh, think about and act towards animals, just as, for example, it describes pretty clearly the way in which Europeans enslaved Africans, transported them across to the United States or to the colonies as they then were and, and sold them and treated them as things to exploit. Uh, I think that comparison, and I'm not, it's, it's, it's an analogy, of course, it's not, I'm not saying this is a complete comparison in every respect, far from it, but, but I think those aspects of this prejudice do relate pretty clearly to racism of the kind that justified slavery, uh, even more than it does to the more subtle uh, forms of, of racism that exist still today. Should the interests of human and animals be taken as equal, or is there some level of speciesism that is uh, appropriate? My understanding of uh, the consideration we should give to animals is that we should give equal consideration where the interests are similar. So in other words, if something causes pain to an animal, let's just say for simple comparison, causes physical pain to an animal, and we have reason to believe that it's causing similar physical pain to a human, then it's just as bad in each case. We should go to just the same lengths to try to prevent that. So equal consideration for similar interests. But to say that is not to say that all of the interests that non-human animals have are similar to all of the interests that humans have. So I don't think it's speciesism to say, for instance, that killing a human being who wants to go on living, who has formed plans for the future, who's aware of his or her future. Um, I don't think that that's the same as killing a non-human animal who isn't capable, doesn't have their cognitive capacities to think about what they're going to do uh, in, a, in the distant future. Anyway, I, lots of animals, I guess, can think about what they're going to do in the immediate future and try to get some food or 
hide away somewhere or whatever else it is. But if we're talking about, you know, what are you going to do next summer? Humans think about that. I doubt that there are non-human animals that think about that. And I would say this does give humans a particular interest in continuing to live that is different from the interests that the non-human animals have. Because the scale of industrial animal agriculture is so great, um, you mentioned 74 billion as one number of how many animals we're killing for food in that system every year. And because the suffering inflicted upon it in within it is so pure, um, if you're a chicken raised for food in this system, you are genetically engineered in a way that makes your entire life painful, you're, fun- you're functionally tortured and then you're killed. How does that push the question of when we are al- when you are allocating money to give between what you can do in giving uh, to save animals versus humans who are more expensive and arguably are leading at least lives of more mixed pleasure than what's happening to animals within the industrial agriculture system? That's a very difficult question, and I don't have a good answer to it. Uh, a really good answer would require you to be able to compare how much the chickens are suffering and how does that compare with how much humans suffer in, in various ways. Perhaps, you know, if you're talking about saving a life, how much does a child suffer who's dying from malaria? How much do the parents of the child suffer watching their child die? Uh, those comparisons are very difficult. One thing that you can say, though, is that it seems that you can af- reduce the suffering of many more animals for the same outlay uh, as compared with humans. So the campaign that I just mentioned that achieved success in in Michigan yesterday, I don't know how much that campaign cost, but I don't think you'd be talking about many millions. Um, whereas you know that's going to change lives for about 10 million hens in cages, uh, and you know, not just for the 10 million in cages now, but... Uh, all of those 10 million hens that would have existed in cages in years to come and that now will have a better life. Uh, by the way, let me interrupt and say I don't think they're having a perfect life at all. I don't think this solves all the problems of factory farming to let them out of cages. They'll still be crowded, they'll still be indoors, but it will definitely be a better life. So could you have achieved as much reduction of suffering with a similar expenditure for humans? It's it's hard to say, um, but it's quite arguable that even if you do think that uh, that hens suffer less than humans uh, in, or in different ways, uh, it still looks like very good value to have supported the Humane League's campaign in Michigan. The uh, importance of suffering here can lead people into directions of concern that I think are a little bit unintuitive, uh, at least outside some of these movements. And so something you hear about increasingly within effective altruism and within some uh, parts of philosophy is what degree of concern, and for all the reasons of the the concern about the child in the pond, what degree of responsibility do we have to wild animals who are suffering? I'm curious if you have a take on that. Yes, this is an interesting issue, which uh, I didn't discuss when I wrote Animal Liberation, because I just assumed that even though, obviously, wild animals do suffer, and um, some of that suffering is inflicted by other wild animals, some of it is inflicted by the conditions under which they live, which can cause drought or flooding or fire. I just assumed that that was not a question worth discussing until we stopped causing so much suffering to animals ourselves. But in the last few years, there have been some philosophers who've pointed to this suffering and have raised questions about it and pointed out that some of the things that we do when, for example, we defend the preservation of wildlife habitat, and you might automatically think, that's a good thing, right? 
Now we've got wildlife habitat. Now we've got more biodiversity. Now we've got animals able to go on enjoying their lives. And instead, we would have got, uh, you know, let's say, a shopping mall or whatever it might it might have been. And yes, I can understand all of that, and and maybe in the end that's right. But uh, some of these philosophers have pointed out, well, but you've also got a lot of suffering going on, and this is not just the suffering when uh, the lion uh, sinks her teeth into the zebra. Um, it's also the fact that there are there are species that breed by producing thousands of offspring. You know, fish would be an example here, and of those thousands. 99.99% are going to die, um, and often they may die painful deaths. So some people think that there's likely to be more suffering in nature than there is enjoyment or happiness. Uh, and then they say, so maybe it's not so good to preserve habitat where all of this suffering is going on. Maybe the the parking lot of the supermarket mall has less suffering in it than an equivalent number of, of acres of, of wilderness. But of course, that also raises other questions about values, questions about biodiversity. Is it, is it important to preserve species as such? And although I do find it hard to sort of answer a confident yes, because it's it's hard to fit that into the framework that I talked about earlier, where what we're interested in is 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 well-being and improving the well-being of sentient creatures. Uh, I'm not confident enough that there isn't value in that to say, you know, well, let's not worry about it. You know, if more species become extinct, so what? You know, there are out there, there may be other animals living just as good lives, or uh, maybe there was more suffering. I, uh, I'm not that ready to turn my back on uh, environmental values or to accept the idea that future generations will not regret in various ways the fact that species became extinct on our watch. Perhaps that's a way of, of giving a sort of welfare value to it, to say, you know, we're sorry that we can't see the species that uh, our ancestors made extinct, the dodo or Stella's sea cow or whatever other species it might be, um, and other future generations will feel the same. But I'm not sure that whether that really gets to the heart of it. So there are questions of other values that need to be resolved. You're someone who integrates a lot of work on how people form moral judgments, what the neuroscience says on it, what the social science says on it. And so I'm curious, it would be pretty easy within the framework of speciesism if it were just all equal, right? If people valued human lives and valued animal lives at zero. But they don't. Um, people love their dogs and their cats, in some cases their lizards and their bunnies. Um, it's considered a mark of sociopathy um, if you are somebody who tortures animals when you're young. How do you think about what is happening in people's minds when they love not only their dogs, but just dogs in general, share dog gifts on the internet, hell, share little sheep gifts on the internet, and then participate in animal agriculture? Yeah, I think there is a huge disconnect that people have there. Uh, and I'm not opposed to the fact that people love and care for dogs and cats and a couple of other species, because I do think that can be a stepping stone to thinking about animals as a whole. Uh, and I often try to argue by saying, you know, so you have a dog, you love your dog, you wouldn't lock your dog up uh, in a crate that your dog was really unable to move in and uh, just feed your dog twice a day and leave the dog there in isolation. But, um, but do you know that pigs are just as intelligent as dogs? They're social animals too. Uh, and yet that's exactly how pigs are treated on, on factory farms. Uh, 
So I think it, it can be, in a way, a, a useful path in for people. But uh, it remains true, and uh, despite you know, 40 years in which I've been arguing against this, uh, it remains true that most people who love dogs and cats still do consume other animals without very much thought about it. And that's, that is a real disconnect. It is a matter of focusing on one animal, which is sort of part of your family or maybe on the species of that animal. And uh, I think really refusing to look at the facts about the nature of, of pigs and cows and chickens and other animals uh, who we eat and uh, facing the facts about how they're being treated before they get turned into meat. This is a slightly trickier space, but uh, but, I, but I want to try to talk about it, which is I'm interested in how the disconnects happen in all of us. Um, I'm vegan now, but for a long time I had read your book. I believed everything I believe now about animals' ability to feel pain and suffering. And I ate meat with relative abandon and Instagrammed photos of hamburgers. And I can kind of explain, you know, in my own life and in my own journey how I ended up making making the transition. But I recognize that for a long time I had a certain moral framework and I just ignored it. And I'm certain I do that on all kinds of issues all day, every day. And then there are people who, you know, to varying and greater and lesser degrees, close themselves to what they know either intellectually or intuitively is moral and people who open themselves to that sometimes open themselves to that to the point that it overwhelms the rest of their life. And Larissa McFarkar's great book, Strangers Drowning, is very much about people who seem to have taken off that filter and almost can't stop thinking about what their actions will mean for others. What is your understanding or model of how the disconnect works in all of us. Like, what, what is it that leads somebody to take a moral intuition seriously? And what is it that allows them to just, even though they hold it, to not listen to what it is telling them? I think a lot of it is is who your peers are and, and the views of what your community is doing. Um, I guess that at the time, even after you read my book and accepted the arguments, uh, but were still eating hamburger, that part of this was that this was what all of your friends and other people that you knew were doing, and it was kind of hard to break from that. I think each humans really are a social animal, and we do tend to follow what others do and take our lead from other people. So I think that's a part of it. And maybe it's getting easier now to be a vegan because so many people are. You know, even the word vegan, nobody would have understood what you meant when... Um, I wrote Animal Liberation, uh, so I didn't really talk about being vegan very much. I talked about being vegetarian in the 1975 edition. But I think those things are starting to change. But if you look, you, you asked a more general question, of course, as well, and that is what leads people to sort of follow their moral inclinations and thoughts and, and what leads some people not to. Uh, it's hard to say. There, there, there may be there may be innate differences between people in terms of the extent to which they feel compassion with others, uh, and that may be a driving force for some. But I, I don't think we really know that the answer to that question. I think there's some research going on about that. Um, as you say, Larissa McFarquhar's Strangers Drowning uh, gives some really interesting examples and has some interesting discussion on that. But I'm sure she would not say that she's got all the answers to why some of the people that she talks about in her book do quite extraordinary things, whereas others, you know, know that something that they're participating in is wrong, but they shrug their shoulders and go along with it. It's funny, your intuition there is actually right on that um, a lot of what made the difference for me was that 
my wife had gone vegetarian and I had as well, and she became vegan. And that was the social support in which I ultimately went vegan was in a, and was able to stick to it that time as opposed to other times I'd tried, which is all to say that something I, I believe very deeply is that human beings reason socially, that mo more of our cognition is communal than people like to admit. And you're making the argument that we reason morally, socially too, which it seems to me it implies that one of the most powerful acts people can engage in, whether they know how to do it effectively or not, is an interesting question. But in theory, the thing you want to do most is change what societies believe to be moral or immoral. Because if everybody agrees that we all need to be donating, say, 10% of our income to be a decent person, then it will be easy. But to the extent that it feels like you're doing something nobody else is, or even more, you're doing something that makes you shunned by others, being a vegan is often an uncomfortable thing to be, then very few people will do it. It seems that that would just put a very high weight on what can you do to influence the culture itself. Yeah, that's correct. And I think um, there's a sociologist called Alvin Guldner who wrote an article many years ago called the norm of selfishness. And and he pointed out that in the United States, certainly at that time, still true to some extent, I think, um, wealthy people actually didn't talk very much about their philanthropy, even if they were being philanthropic and giving away significant sums. They didn't talk about it, and they didn't talk about it uh, because they were a little bit embarrassed about it, and they thought their friends would think they were silly um, doing this, you know, because the, the, the norm among that group was you know, that you get as much as you can. You accumulate what you have. I think it was Ivan Bersky who said, you know, he who has the most when he dies wins. Or maybe he was wearing a T-shirt that said that. So I think, yeah, we have to try and get rid of that norm. It's more limited now, I think. There are more people who are talking about, especially millennials, who are talking about having purposes and making a difference in the world. And then they're not just talking about accumulating wealth. But it is very important to change those cultural norms. And, uh, Part of the trouble is we don't really know very well how to do it. Um, I think that's a, a fruitful area for psychological research to see how we do go about changing those norms. But part of the problem, too, is that we have a lot of norms that conflict with that directly. I mean, you, you, you talk in the book a bit about how many of the religious traditions prize the idea of charity being an anonymous, humble, quiet act. Um, there is something it, that... We are much more comfortable with people flaunting their wealth than in some ways flaunting their virtue. Uh, we don't like it when people do that. It makes it, makes it feel like they're saying they're superior to us. It makes us feel bad. And there's a, a grand tradition that, you know, in, in Judaism, the highest form of tzedakah uh, is the tzedakah that is given with nobody truly knowing where it came from or even why it came. And so it creates, I think, an interesting push on is part of what is either obligated or at the very least effective about charity, not just the actual charity you do, but the degree to which you signal that it is something you are doing so other people feel at least that little bit of either social acceptance or even social pressure. Uh, so I'm an advocate for publicity in terms of the fact that you're giving because I'm persuaded by the psychological research that shows that uh, other people are more likely to give if they know that their peers are giving. Uh, and I think there's, there's pretty good evidence of that. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I go against uh, both that uh, Jewish norm with tzedakah that you mentioned, and uh, also it's in uh, Christian teachings as well. Jesus is reported as saying in the Gospels that, you know, you, you shouldn't give out loud, you should give in secret and not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Um, but that seems to me clearly counterproductive in the present environment. And uh, we ought to be more up 
upfront about this. Can we change norms that way? Can we get over the embarrassment uh, that people feel? It's, you know, again, you, you don't want to put yourself up as the paragon of righteousness, but um, I think you do need to try to let people know that you're doing something significant and that you think that really everybody above a certain minimum level ought to be doing that. I'm going to move to a bit of a lightning round here where I just want to get your take on some of the the trickier issues people talk about now. Um, one is artificial intelligence risk. How how do you take the argument for AI as an existential risk to the future of humanity? I think there clearly is some possible risk. I accept arguments from uh, Nick Bostrom and Toby Ord and uh, Will McCaskill. There is some risk. But I'm not convinced that we really can do very much about it now. I think it's good that some people are working on it. But depending on how far into the future you think this is going to happen, uh, my guess is that we'll be in a much better position to know how to prevent this happening uh, 10 or 20 years down the line than we are today. Given that having children, um, one, increases various kinds of resource pressure uh, on the environment, arguably on the agriculture system, and means that time and resources you could dedicate to a broader uh, effort to uh, improve the world are going to probably go towards your children. Is having children a moral act? I think it is, and I think it is in part because whether you think that the issue that we talked about before, the extent to which people will take notice of, of ethics and act in accordance with it, whether you think that is something that is imparted to children through their education and, and home upbringing, or whether you think it's genetic, um, in either way, if people who think ethically stop having children and people who don't think ethically continue to have children, the future for the planet's not going to be very good. Is open borders a moral imperative? Open borders would be a moral imperative if the public as a whole were more accepting of the idea of mass immigration. But given that they're not at all accepting of it, given the fact that concerns about immigration have clearly brought about the election of Donald Trump as president in this country, have clearly brought about the vote in favor of Brexit in the United Kingdom, have clearly contributed to the election of right-wing governments in Hungary and Poland. Um, I think that, in fact, the moral imperative is not to have open borders because immigration is an important issue, but it's not the only issue. Uh, I think climate change, for example, is a significantly more important issue. And all of the Conservatives who get elected on the anti-immigrant bandwagon have been opposed to taking any serious steps to prevent climate change. There are people who argue that what really makes human beings more moral over time is simply GDP growth, that as economies become richer, people have more space and feel less pressure and have more of the psychological preconditions to acting altruistically. Do you think the folks who argue that the best thing to do for the future is simply to grow the economy as much as we can in the present are making a good argument? I do think that it's important that people are not struggling to meet their basic needs and that if they are, it's hard for them to act ethically, not impossible. Some still do, but fewer will do it. But I don't think it's important to grow the economy beyond the stage at which people don't have to really worry about meeting their basic needs. Um, and in the case of the United States, I think we have a big enough economy for that. We just don't distribute it uh, as well as some of the European countries uh, do distribute it with actually smaller economies per capita. 
A related version of that argument is that technological change is what really leads to moral change. And I think in the animal rights space, you can actually see this pretty clearly that in polling, you have about the same number of vegetarians and vegans you had 10, 15, 20 years ago. But as more meat replacements come online um, and as they get a lot better, it seems there is at least a possibility of pretty large-scale change in the future because you'll be able to have meat grown in a lab. Um, you'll be able to have indistinguishable meat that is made from plants. Is one argument here that the the most moral work to do is simply scientific advances in the spaces where people's moral intuitions would be hard for them to follow such that um, you need technology to make them more achievable? Yes, I do think that is tremendously important work. I think it's it's on a par with finding clean renewable energy, given that it seems that governments are not prepared to do enough to restrict uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and I think finding economical, healthy, clean, tasty alternatives to the animal products we're consuming is also extremely important, both for the animals uh, and also, of course, for climate change, because animals contribute a lot to greenhouse gas emissions. One of the things that the technologies we've invented in the last couple of decades have really done is it has lowered the bar and increased the prevalence of public shaming as a reaction to people being unethical or at least being seen as being unethical. Do you think public shaming is effective? Well, it's certainly effective in some cases, yes. Um, the problem is that it's not always well-directed. Uh, it's not always directed to where the most harm is, and some of it is quite petty and um, you know, rather mean, uh, mean-spirited um, uh, for people who've you know, made mistakes, but they get far more abuse and their lives are damaged far beyond what they deserve. Whereas other people um, who, you know, let's say they're, they're billionaires, um, they're spending their money on luxury yachts and uh, items of that sort. Uh, for example, uh, tourism to the moon seems to me to be something that people should be ashamed of talking about. Even... Um, even the fact that you're you're wearing a ten thousand dollar watch on your hand when you could tell the time just as well with a fifty dollar watch um, ought to be something that people are publicly shamed about, um, and uh, you know that so far has not been effective. Um, but I think I think it could be. I think that we need to direct the public shaming where it it really will do the most good. If you're comfortable answering this, what's the area of your life where you find it hardest to put into practice your own philosophical principles? I'm quite comfortable answering that. And really, it's that I'm still living uh, higher than I ought to be. I'm giving away sort of somewhere between a third and a half most years of of what I'm earning. Um, But I could be giving more than that. And uh, I guess I'm still too selfish to to go the further step and, and do that. And then my last question is, what is the one policy you think could be implemented? I I take your point on open borders potentially having a backfiring effect that if it were implemented, you think would do the most good? I think that would probably be uh, something connected with climate change at the moment. I think this is a huge challenge. And uh, exactly what it is, whether it's subsidizing uh, clean energy and alternatives to the forms of meat production that cause the most greenhouse gases, or, or whether it's uh, a, a carbon tax or a, a cap-and-trade scheme, whatever will do the most in that way to slow climate change and uh, hopefully eventually reverse some of the effects that we're already having, I think would be a policy that would do an incredible amount of good, not just now, but for centuries to come. And let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is, what are three books you'd recommend to the audience? Well, in the present climate of uh, somewhat 
repressive culture with regard to free speech, I think people should go back and read John Stuart Mill's book On Liberty. Uh, I think it still makes impressive arguments for the importance of allowing ideas, even ideas that you're hostile to, to be expressed in order to maintain the views that are the true views uh, as, as living truths rather than as dead dogmas. Uh, if you're feeling gloomy and pessimistic about the world, I think you could read Stephen Pinker's uh, book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. Um, you can also go online to our world in data and look at the, some of the uh, data there. I think that uh, people do get too gloomy and down, and we've made a lot of progress. We're continuing to make progress in the world, and uh, it's good that people should know about that. For those who are more philosophically inclined, um, have a look at uh, Derek Parfit's study on what matters, which is now in three volumes. The third volume was published uh, just after he died, but he completed it before he died. Um, I think Derek Parfit is certainly the the most brilliant philosopher that I've known in my lifetime, uh, perhaps the most brilliant of the of late 20th and early 21st centuries. Um, and he does write quite clearly, so you know, don't be worried. It's not going to be like reading Heidegger. It's not kind of ob obscure stuff where you won't understand the words, but you will have to think pretty hard about the arguments uh, that he's putting there. Oh, and sh I should say, if you're put off by the fact that On What Matters is three volumes, you could go and look at his uh, first major uh, book, uh, Reasons and Persons, which is only one volume, even if quite a large one. And The Life You Can Save is being reissued, right? Yes, there's a new 10th anniversary edition. It will be available in print from bookstores, but you don't have to pay for it. You can go to thelifeyoucansave.org and you'll be able to download a free ebook from there. You'll also be able to download a free audiobook, and the audiobook will be read by various celebrities. Uh, I've already mentioned that uh, Mike Schur, Kristen Bell, Mark Evan Jackson from The Good Place are reading chapters. But so is Paul Simon of uh, the singer-songwriter. So is Shabana Azmi, who's a famous Indian actress. Nicholas D'Agosto, who's, who's another actor. Stephen Fry, the English uh, actor and comedian in his beautiful English accent. Uh, I'm reading a chapter. Uh, Winnie Alma, who's an African woman who's worked to reduce poverty, is reading it in her Ugandan accent. So uh, I like the idea that it's a, a book about a global problem being read with a global selection of English accents. Oh, and also Natalia Vodianova, who's a, a Russian supermodel, will be reading it with her lightly Russian-accented English. And this is lifeyoucansave.org. That's right. That's where you can go. After, from December 3rd onwards. Peter Singer, thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you to Peter Singer for being here. That, again, is a alifeyoucansave.org. That book is short and easy and worth reading. If you haven't read it, it is a book that will stick with you probably forever. Um, it is remarkable the power of a very simple thought experiment and how much it can do to change and reframe some of the everyday things we all do in our lives. Um, as always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. Mm -hmm.